So, Mr. Chair, uh, you have uh, uh, the hearing starting for the Castro Valley MAC. Thank you, Rodrigo. And good evening, everybody. This is the February 15th, 2023 special land use meeting of the Castro Valley Municipal Advisory Council. Welcome, everybody, and hope everyone had a great Valentine's Day. Yay. Um, Councilmember Thomas, would you be kind enough to lead us in the pledge, please? Yes, sir. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republics for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, Tojo. Rodrigo, can we have the roll call, please? Yes, Member Thomas. I'm here. Member Padro. Present. Member Prokopov. Here. Member Moore. Uh, Member Killebrew. Here. Vice Chair Carboni. Not with us yet. Oh, he's, uh, I see him as an attendee. Let me switch him over to panelist. Make him say here. <laughs> yes, uh, we can get back to him. Chair Mulgrew? Present. Okay, so I promoted him to panelist. He should accept and then be made a panelist. Um, Perhaps we can up oh, there. He is there he now. Is. There he is. Member Carboni, we're taking roll. So if you could please say here. here. Yay. Thank you. So everybody's here. Thank you, Rodrigo. Um, before we get into the actual agenda, I just want to um, insert a special mention. On February 7th, Supervisor Richard Valle passed away, if you don't know. He served uh, as an Alameda County Supervisor in District 2 for 11 years, approximately covering Hayward, Newark, and Union City. And prior to that, he was a very valued Union City Council member for 12 years. Um, if you knew him, you knew he was a gentleman and a gentleman and a tireless, tireless advocate for, for the rights of others, um, hard worker, and uh, one thing about Supervisor Valle was his ability to listen and internalize. And, and I know the, the board and all of us are going to miss him a great deal. And I would just ask the council to join me for a brief moment of silence in his memory and honor. Thank you. Okay, we will go right into item E on the on tonight's agenda, which is an action item to adopt findings authorizing this body to continue meeting for the next 30 days via teleconference. Um, I got word today that we will actually be having our first hybrid meeting on the 27th of this month, um, which is not quite two weeks. And at that, I'll be sending out an email with all the particulars on that, but it looks like our hybrid meeting will be happening um, this month. And at this point, I would ask if anyone has a motion to approve the uh, findings to adopt or motion to adopt. I'll, 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 move, I'll move approval to adopt the findings for the remote teleconferencing. Second Thank motion. Thank you all. Rodrigo, roll call, please. Chair, Member Thomas? Yes. Member Padro? Aye. Member Prokopov? Yes. Member Moore? 
Yes. Member Killebrew? Yes. Vice Chair Carboni? Yes. Chair Mulgrew? Aye. So 7-0. Seven, 7-0. Zero. Seven, zero. Awesome. Item F is uh, the public announcements and open forum where we invite members of the community to speak for up to three minutes on any subject that's not on tonight's agenda. If you wish to speak on anything that's not on the agenda, please use the raise hand button at the bottom of the screen and you will be called on in order. So we have a person who um, has raised their hand. I will allow them to speak. Kelly A, if you could unmute yourself and go ahead, please. Yeah, um, so since we're talking about Castro Valley here today, I'd point you to the website where they have the general plan annual reports for 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, and 2020. And it seems like they skipped 2018. I'm wondering if they're going to skip 2021 and 2022. You know, it seems like they're a little bit behind on these general plan annual reports. But as near as what the reports are saying, it seems like you built didn't build that many units in uh, Castor Valley. If you want to learn how to build units, look at Hayward. Hayward built up quite a few units per capita, according to San Francisco Chronicle yesterday's uh, story. But by far, the number one city in California that built the most units per capita was Dublin. Dublin, way ahead of number two and number three and number four. They looked at 100, about 80 or 100 cities in, in the Bay Area, and Dublin really cranked them out. Um, Castro Valley is not, not even, I think, in the top half, I, I, I bet. But we're running here in the dark a little bit. There's also a story out of the San Jose. Everybody here in Castro Valley has been worried about these ADUs. And the headline in San Jose, city of San Jose, it's a big city in the Bay Area. Headline is that ADUs fizzled, that they're not building that many. They were supposed to, you know, build, come out, do a lot of ADUs and supposed to be contributing units. Well, it's not. It's not. And now... And finally, uh, one of the key elements in, uh, in, in uh, any community in, in uh, Castor Valley is, um, is roads. And I'm looking at uh, Google right now, and uh, I've driven in Castor Valley, and maybe so have you, and I see road closures everywhere. Castor Valley's gotta be one of the hardest hit cities for road closures. You got Palomar, you got five major roads closed. Let's list them all. Uh, you remember that's the director of public works. Uh, you, we were all talking to him a few months ago. Um, he was sitting right here and uh, it, it, he would. Um, so he's got Palomar's uh, road closed. He's got Norris Canyon road closed. He basically went all around Castor Valley and like choked off Castor Valley. He's got Redwood road closed. He's got the Lake Chabot road closed. Uh, that's on the, on the west side of Lake Chabot. And most importantly, he's got A Street is looks like a one way with giant traffic jams around there uh, uh, over there by the creek that what had a uh, uh, the 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 washout at that at that creek. So um, yeah, we're, Castro Valley has got to be one of the hardest hit cities around in, in the Alameda County at least for having uh, severe transportation uh, uh, failures in terms of roads. And uh, we do, uh, guys got to got to really get some help from that public works agency. Thanks. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. Uh, do we have anybody else, Rodrigo, that wishes to speak? Uh, nobody has raised their hand. For those of you who are uh, attendees, if you wish to speak, you can 
raise your hand if you're on computer at the bottom of the screen, the raise hand icon. If you're on the phone, you can press star nine to raise your hand and then star six to unmute yourself. So nobody so far has raised their hand. All righty. Give it a count of two and say, we will now close public comment for, on this agenda item and move right into item G, which is the approval of minutes. We have no minutes submitted for approval, so we'll deal with those next meeting. And there is nothing on the consent calendar, so let's get right into item one on the regular agenda, which is an informational item on the proposed objective standards. And Rodrigo, who's going to present tonight? Yes, thank you. So I'm here to present um, the uh, current draft form of the objective standards for Incorporated Alameda County. I've got uh, the M Group, a consulting firm that uh, you may remember the county hired to help us draft these objective standards. Uh, Tom Ford is going to lead their team along with uh, Phil Erickson and James Jimenez. Um, they will be presenting the draft objective standards as they have been working on based on a workshop, um, a series of workshops that we held with uh, two members of each Castro Valley, or two members of each municipal advisory council. So two from Castro Valley, two from Eden, two from Fairview, and one from the, from the Sanol CAC, the Community Advisory Committee. And so we held workshops with those folks as well as folks who uh, who were interested in the um, development of the objective standards. And uh, we have come up with this draft. And the idea is to go to the, to the full bodies of the Castro Valley MAC and the um, other uh, MACs, and then go on to the Planning Commission and the Board of Supervisors. So today we wanted to present you with, with the uh, draft of the objective standards, take your feedback, and continue working on them as we uh, hear feedback from the other uh, community bodies and then going to the Planning Commission and the Board of Soups and hopefully adopting them uh, later this year, um, hopefully late summer. So so that's the very broad uh, background information on them. Um, Rodrigo, Tom, just a, a, a couple of quick questions, if I may. Um, um, first, who who from this uh, council was involved in the, the, the workshop? So it was Chuck Moore and uh, I believe uh, Tojo Thomas. Okay, awesome. Thank you. And were there any were there any developers that were heard from as part of the um, information gathering? So, yeah, we had we had one developer, Mark Crawford. Okay. Very good. Okay. Thank you. All right, and so so yeah, so with that, I will um, turn it over to Tom, who's got a presentation of PowerPoint, and then uh, we can we can take your comments. So Tom. Great. Thank you, Rodrigo. <clears throat> Good evening, uh, Mr. Chair, Vice Chair, and Council Welcome. Members. I'm gonna share my screen right now. I have a little presentation. Not only we, did we give you lots to read before tonight, but we also put together a presentation. Hold on. Which uh, screen am I sharing? Can you see the whole screen? Yes. Okay, the whole show. Great. So thanks. Yeah, it's been a little while. So some of this is going to be to refresh you uh, with, you know, why we're doing this and what the objective standards will become. Um, so this is a little agenda we want to 
wrap by eight o'clock when your meeting ends. So have a little bit of an introduction uh, and then we'll have the just an overview to remind you what the objective standards are about, why we're doing it. Talk a little bit about what they be, can become. And then hopefully by about 6.20 or so, I'll turn it back over to the chair and uh, you can manage the discussion among your group. And what I have to provide you to help you with that discussion is I can pull up on my screen if you need it, uh, the draft of the documents that we gave you to review in advance of tonight. Um, so what we've done so far, we had um, the working group that met twice, um, and in between those two meetings, we started developing some preliminary standards uh, in consultation with the county staff, and, um, and so now we're back here tonight just to show you uh, kind of where we are and how we're going to go forward, and we're pointing towards the uh, Planning Commission, the Transportation Committee, and eventually the Board of Supervisors. The team here tonight, uh, not all of us are here tonight. That's me speaking in the upper left. I'm joined by uh, one of my associates here at M Group, James Jimenez. And then we also have Phil Erickson from Community Design and Architecture on the um, panel tonight. <clears throat> so when we get to any questions that you may have, uh, Phil and I will be able to handle those. So again, as Rodrigo pointed out, we're here tonight, February 15th. Um, and then in the month of March, we'll be following up with the other communities, um, basically to give them a very similar presentation to what you're seeing and get their input. And then again, point towards the Planning Commission and eventually the Board of Supervisors. So of all the materials you got, uh, including we gave you uh, last Friday a, a version of this presentation because there were some pretty lengthy uh, uh, summaries of recent housing legislation, and we wanted to give you a chance to read that over the weekend rather than trying to read my screen real fast. So I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview of those that legislation. As you're probably aware, there's been a lot of legislation coming down every session um, pointing towards housing and, and things that are changing and really affecting how much local control there is. So the primary things to review will be the multifamily and mixed use objective standards. And then uh, some townhome objective standards that are really just tailored towards that kind of a development or residential prototype. And then we also uh, put in a sheet, I think it was attachment D, uh, objective standards for lot size consistency to make that language that exists right now in some of your county documents, make it more objective so that it's just really clearly plain and you know, there's no way, there's no wiggle room and it's not subjective in any way. So let me move on to the next section. You've probably seen this slide from me before. Um, what the objective standards are. And this is coming out of uh, SB 35, which I'm sure most of you have heard of, if not all of you. Um, and so the key to the objective standard is there can be nothing, um, like I said earlier, wiggle room, but there can't be anything that's left to subjective judgment. It has to be really clearly uh, stated what's what, what the um, desired outcome is of a certain thing, whether it be um, you know, where the parking is located, how the parking is addressed from the building, um, things that can happen on the facade of a building, perhaps to make it more uh, 
in keeping with the community character. So let me just review a little bit of the housing legislation. Um, you know, starting way back in 1982, the state uh, passed the Housing Accountability Act. That's been modified and updated uh, a few times since then. I'll get into that in a little bit. But the Housing Accountability Act or the HAA lays down a lot of just rules for what can and can't happen um, as projects move forward and as projects come before you. Um, the state, as you probably know, has become very concerned that uh, that projects be allowed to continue and not be delayed or held up in a discretionary process for reasons that might hinder the development of affordable housing. In 2017, uh, SB 167 was an amendment to the Housing Accountability Act. Uh, it strengthened it and um, it just it, it it strengthened the act and also started to introduce this uh, ministerial process for how to move process projects through. The one that you've probably heard the most on the right of the screen in 2017 also was SB 35, which if it uh, provide if a project provides the right amount of affordable housing in a community that's deficit, it is not it hasn't met its RENA needs. Um, a project can move forward and the only way that it can be judged in a ministerial process is by objective standards. So that's that's one of the bigger project one of the bigger pieces of legislation that came forward. Switching gears a little bit, there's also been a lot of legislation specifically aimed at other issues, for instance, parking um, and and the way that how uh, projects are approved. So uh, for instance, you're starting to see a lot of um, legislation where if a project is within a certain distance of a, pub, of a verified public transit, it can't just be a bus stop. It has to, I believe, have a headway of at least uh, 15 or 30 minutes. I think it's 15 minutes. But if you have a project within that kind of a transit opportunity, for instance, you can't enforce any kind of parking minimum. So, um, and then on the right, in 2019, another amendment to the Housing uh, Affordability Act or Housing Accountability Act was SB 330. And SB 330 really talks or addresses the streamlining process, references the objective standards and um, strengthened all of, the, all of the legislation that came before it that was um, amending the Housing Accountability Act. Really recently, this last session, um, you're starting to see some legislation that's coming in that looks at underutilized um, commercial uh, designations of so parcels that are designated for commercial use uh, in the right kind of circumstance can now have um, affordable housing proposed on them. And it's in a ministerial process exempt from CEQA. So again, the, oh, here's a situation where the only thing that the staff can use in that ministerial process are objective standards. And on the right, another version of that is, um, again, uh, looking at ways to establish housing on, on 
parcels that are zoned for office or retail uses, but if it's the right kind of project, and uh, it's not only exempt from CEQA, but it's uh, open to a ministerial process. So the reason we wanted to give you just an overview of just a few of the pieces of legislation is to point out the importance of why uh, the county and county staff have taken on uh, this project to hire us and get these um, objective standards in place. So just to remind you, right now you have your um, the residential development standards and design guidelines document. I believe it was adopted in 2014. It includes both subjective design guidelines and it also includes objective verifiable standards. So what we're trying to do is strengthen that document to the degree that we can. And that's where we really uh, leaned on the working group to help us flesh out some of those subjective guidelines and see where there was room um, or interest in making them objective. So again, on the left are the design guidelines that you use in a discretionary process, the type of project that will come to you, for instance. Uh, maybe somebody wants to do something in Castro Valley. It, it's right within your uh, project area. And you, you look at it, you can meet with the, the, the uh, applicant, you can ask for certain things to be changed, always relying on your guidelines, but still you're having a back and forth negotiation. If the qualifying project comes through and can only be um, judged by staff by what's in the objective standards, then you look on the right column and we need as much regulatory, um, to, as many regulatory tools as we can to try to enforce those things that are uh, currently subjective design guidelines. And the way you do that is everything has to be measurable, quantifiable. So for instance, if we wanna talk about community character, there's really no way to define that, that, that any two people would know the exact definition of what character means. So you have to find something else, some other way of doing that. And that's where we're going with these objective standards. So let me just talk about some of the, the issues that we looked at. And just a reminder, um, you know, the difference between a subjective and an objective uh, guideline. So for instance, um, respectful. You know, adjacent is pretty clear. That's a pretty clear word, but respectful um, transitions. The city of San um, the city of San Mateo recently lost an appellate decision out of the appellate court in Los Angeles for the word transition. They were using the word transition in what they thought were objective guidelines, objective standards, and the court ruled that because they didn't define what a transition was in going from one transitioning from one height to another, it was subjective. And so they lost the, the lawsuit against the developer that, want, that uh, prevailed. So how would you do that? Here's an objective version. And this is actually taken from the standards that are before you tonight, where it's basically talking about a buffer between a single family parcel and a multifamily parcel, and just putting down some very measurable um, elements that go into creating that buffer. So everything here is objective. There's no way an applicant can be with the planner at the counter in a ministerial process 
and everything is clearly spelled out. There's got to be one tree for every 30 feet. It's a six foot height uh, fence and um, a minimum five foot wide landscape buffer. There's another subjective one. Built space structures, other devices should be used to create strongly defined edges. One person's definition of a strongly defined edge is going to be different than another's. One person's definition of a sense of enclosure is going to be different than another. So for instance, right now, this would not be objective by any means, but it's got good intent and it's a very nice subjective design guideline, but what can we do to make that objective? And so we start to define things, you know, define some distance, some um, minimum percentages of things just to get to a place where we can have an objective standard that tries to attain that same goal that the design guideline had. Um, Box-like form, that's probably fairly, you could probably agree on what that is, but the unrelieved surfaces, that's pretty hard to define. One person's um, understanding of what an unrelieved surface is would be different from another's. So you try to find ways to, to actually, again, put in measurements or ratios or something that allows you to control and, um, this differentiation of surfaces that you're trying to achieve. So actually, before I move on, let me just point out that in that 2014 document that you have right now, the Residential Development Standards and Design Guidelines, there's a lot of existing uh, objective standards in it. And so you already have a lot of material that's really useful and really helpful. And if it's used properly, it can help you with a lot of these projects. What we've tried to do is go through chapter, uh, I think it's chapter three and chapter five, where they have subjective guidelines and really tried to pull out what to do with those. So again, before you tonight are two drafts. The first draft is the multifamily and mixed use objective standards. Um, just um, so Mr. Moore and Mr. Thomas aren't confused, that was primarily what we worked on with the working group. So you saw that in, in multiple iterations. However, when we then went back and met with staff, we, uh, well, let me just talk about, about this first. So that document is, is divided into site design and building design. And each of those have these separate areas and we can talk or answer questions about any of that. But when we uh, went with that document, we met, went back and started meeting with staff in anticipation of this review with the various uh, municipal advisory councils. We started realizing that we really wanted to, uh, that there's a lot of townhomes that are being proposed, particularly on uh, parcels that are very deep, but very narrow. And so they're coming in and they're they're you know facing their garage doors at the side parcel and, and not paying enough attention to what that public facing facade should be that's looking out at the public street. So that's where the second document came along. And again, we relied on subjective uh, guidelines in um, that book, the 2014 uh, county book, and <clears throat> tried to um, move off of, or build upon chapter 2.4 that really addresses 
uh, from a, an objective standpoint, what you already have in controlling uh, townhome development. So that document, um, it's, a, it's pretty similar. There's a site design section. It has a little bit about utilities that the other, uh, it didn't have as a standalone subsection. And then it has the building design. And again, the building design, as you probably saw, if you had a chance to review uh, the files that we sent out, um, talks about massing and scale, you know, a little bit about uh, the roof design. And then again, trying to get the facade design, not only on the, so let's call them sort of private sides of the building, but certainly on the public facing side of the building that um, is facing the public street. The last thing that we provided with you provided you with uh, for tonight's meeting was we went back and looked at uh, a policy that exists for Castro Valley, and it's also a policy in the recently adopted Fairview specific plan regarding lot size consistency. What we did with that is we tried to, or we did, and we worked with staff, we achieved um, just an objective way to measure new subdivisions so that the parcels are as close as possible in size to the neighborhood that they're coming into. So here, here's that language, um, just trying to find a way to have more consistency in new um, subdivisions and how they uh, match the, uh, the existing character because existing character is not something you can define objectively. The last thing that won't get solidified probably until after the Planning Commission and Board of Supervisors weighs in on the final adopted objective standards, but we're started, we're developing for county staff what's called a checklist. And it allows them when a project comes through, because if you'll remember, as I said earlier, a lot of these projects are going to come through and they're not going to have any kind of discretionary review. They're going to go in a ministerial process, sometimes uh, must be completed within 60 days, 90 days. And the staff needs to go through the project and understand, does it meet all of the objective standards? So what we what we're start with, we're pretty far along with this. It'll just get refined as we refine the language of the objective standards that we're developing for you for your county, um, is we, um, we're we taking the existing zoning ordinances, the existing um, uh, development standards, and adding the objective standards that we're putting in. This is going to be a multi-page document, but what it'll allow is if you can see down there at the bottom, you first just you identify where you are, what are the basic zoning standards for where you are, that tells the, um, the planner who's on a you know a time budget you know, budgeted time review process um, what are the things they need to do where is it located so they can really clearly understand what are perhaps some very specific geographically specific uh, ordinances or zoning requirements that might apply and then go through this so um, I think the staff is looking forward to having this because it'll really allow them to do the ministerial process in hopefully a very efficient way that takes in everything that they'll have before them. So um, what I, what I, as I mentioned earlier, I was just gonna give it back to you, Mr. Chairman, um, let you manage the, the discussion in any way you want. 
And um, like I said, I can pull up documents if you want to ask a specific question, or we can just take general um, advice and comments uh, forward from here. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, and thank you to your associates who are here as well. And at this point, we'll open it up for public comment um, public comment on this item. So if anyone in attendance wishes to speak, uh, hit the raise hand button at the bottom of the screen. You'll have three minutes and we'll go from there. So for those on the phone, if you wanted to hit uh, star nine to raise your hand, uh, that'll raise your hand. And then after that, you can uh, press star six to unmute yourself. I don't see anybody with a hand raised. All righty, then I will take that as an indication to close the public comment on this item. And um, I would ask Mr. Ford, um, before we end, after I ask my question, I'd like to offer the courtesy to Chuck and Tojo, since they were on the, uh, the advisory committee to start us off with their questions and thoughts. But um, Tom, um, how how deep how deep do you want our comments tonight? I mean, are are you looking for input on individual items in the standards, um, a general flavor? How can we be of most help to you and and to staff? I think uh, <laughs> the best thing for us to hear would be as if something's just really wrong, and which I, I think would surprise me because we have been going through this process with you for a while. Right. Um, or if there's just some, maybe there's something that just doesn't sit right with one of you. Like, why is this five feet? Shouldn't it be six feet? You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. That helps. All right. At this point, see Chuck has his hand up. I was going to say, uh, Tom, thank you for the presentation. Well done. Uh, see a lot of the uh, comments are uh, included in there that uh, were made. Um, on that document that they're going to use in the planning department for review, that whether it has it or it doesn't have it, will we see that document as part of um, the review when it comes to the MAC? That last uh, document you showed? The checklist? The checklist. Um, well, I'm I, actually, I was thinking that tonight was. The review with the Mac. So, and, uh, go ahead, Tom. My apologies. Well, so um, the we can share it with you certainly before adoption or planning commission. It's pretty far along. The only thing is, is we're not we're not updating it every time somebody you know changes a verb or something because it's a pretty lengthy document. Right. So it's all structurally, it's all put together right now. We're just waiting for the max and then the planning commission to put their review because for instance you know the planning commission may say no cut a 2.1 that we don't want to see that so it would have to come out of the checklist right it's not like we're hiding the checklist but it's not really ready for review yet and just so you know i mean it will be used by staff it, you'll still have for projects that have a discretionary review process you'll still do that just as you always have, I guess you could use the checklist to help you, but the the checklist is primarily for um, the staff as they're putting this ministerial time constrained uh, 
place to review a project and the application comes in with the right amount of criteria, they have something that they can go to right away that just calls up everything. And well, Rita, I, just, you might, I might have spoken for you there. I don't know. Well, and I, I think uh, it was well done. I, I was just wondering, I see it as kind of a scorecard. You know, if you got 99.5 of the items uh, checked positive that uh, met the criteria and you had a disagreement on something that maybe a developer that well really doesn't fit and we should talk about it, you know, um, versus when something comes in and somebody um, uh, had 60% of the items checked off positive that had met everything and it was another 40%, they still wanted to push the project ahead, it would, um, it, I, I, I would enjoy seeing the checklist to see how well they did and to make sure that um, um, uh, things are covered. So, but sure. I, I think I that'll be fine. Hey, just so, we, just so we're all clear, if somebody comes in and they only they can only complete sixty percent of the checklist, they they don't succeed. They have would they would then have to go to a discretionary process. The objective standards are there to be met, you know, hundred percent, not not sixty percent. So right. they get kicked into a discretionary process. Well, I, I would feel much more comfortable that I knew the planner looked at the checklist and checked off the items. Then maybe that's what I'm saying. Is was there anything that was missed? Did, did did we see something that that somebody thought was there? Um, you know, uh, that's all. Um, it's a scorecard, and uh, for me anyway. So just and just to to because um, that's a that's a that's a good point that you're making, uh, member more that you want to make sure that the checklist is read properly. That's what I'm hearing. That you want to make sure that the checklist is read properly. Let me turn my camera on. Um, sure. That's what I'm hearing. So, so the the whole point of the objective standards is that they will eliminate, in many cases, uh, the need for the lengthy discretionary review process. Um, as mandated by the state, we're supposed to approve uh, certain projects uh, ministerially, meaning there's they go to in essence to a building permit phase only and for those projects that do require a a public hearing that everybody knows this is these are this is now a much more constrained playing field that we're all <clears throat> the project must meet this these standards and so that's what the objective standards are and the the, the checklist is like you're saying uh member more it's it's just the scorecard so that we we've taken those objective standards, put them in this checklist. You're still referring back to the objective standards. If there's any question, the the planner, because this is going to be done on a staff level, the scorecard would be done on a staff level. The planner would say, well, this is what it says in the checklist. Let's if there's a dis disagreement with the developer, let's go back to the objective standards and read the objective standards. This is what this is where it was taken from. And and either you meet the you know the high restrictions or the step back restrictions, or whatever. Or you, or you don't. The idea is to remove that discretion from the planner, um, or from the, or from the body reviewing an application, uh, to hopefully get the projects in through the pipeline much faster. Chuck, anything else? Can before, no. Can before we get to you, I want to go to Toe Joe since he was a part of the uh, 
um, Citizens Committee on this. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, very well done presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom. Um, I just have, a, I don't have anything about the presentation. I just have a question. Are we on good time? The timeline is good. Are we moving forward in the right direction? So yeah, from staff's point of view, we 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 are just behind as we usually are in staff, but only because um, we we didn't get responses back to the consultant in time. Um, so we would have liked to have gotten this adopted already, <laughs> but we're 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 pushing for this summer. Okay, got it. Thank you. Thank you, Tojo, and Chuck and Tojo. Thank you very much for volunteering to be a part of this and for um, what you've done on behalf of. Uh, of this council. Thank you. Vice Chair Carbone. Thank you. Um, again, thank you for your presentation and your work on this project. I, I do have a couple of questions and I think um, Rodrigo, just for clarification of process, um, projects that will come through that that meet these uh, meet these uh, design guidelines will be ministerially moved forward. They will not be uh, brought to the MAC. Now, in, in the case, um, when we got something that is a blanket like this, right? And we're, we're assuming that every parcel can meet size, scale, all of these things that, that um, are in here are pretty cookie cutter. I mean, this is what we would hope to get. Now, Pastor Valley's topography is not always fitting to all of these standards. And so what is, what's gonna happen in this case? So um, let's just say that the lot size consistency in the neighborhood is not quite right, but the project could, uh, uh, the project that's being proposed could work and it's a good fit. Now it's gonna end up being uh, brought to the MAC. What are the steps to basically not circumvent this, but move move a project forward and what is the difficulty of that going to be for an applicant? Well, there's a there's several administrative remedies, right? We could say, well, now now if you don't meet the objective standards, right, then the worst is a variance because that special findings have to be made, or a more discretionary process um, where where the the such as a site development review where if you don't meet the the development standards um, that don't have to do with height that have to do with some other uh, feature that then then it's a it's a lighter uh, decision making process versus the very strict variance process right well, what we don't want necessarily is a is a black or white issue um, it, it helps the developer and again this is this is really intended to allow housing to be processed more quickly well it definitely will clean things up there's no right. no doubt about that right so not only not only not only affordable housing, but also market rate housing, right? Well, just any any housing, any project is is absolutely terrible to get through the process. So anything we can do to improve it is, is huge. I, you know, um, I know a lot of work and effort has gone into this. Um, I can, I, it's definitely can see it. Um, I just was curious about that. Um, not, not, not saying it's a workaround, but just the fact that not everything is going to conform and, uh, you know, and, don't want to make this an impossible task to complete a project or move something through when when it might work and we didn't consider sure it. so so tom if you could help us out here let's, uh, you did work for the town of los gatos which is very hilly um is there some or from either there or some other jurisdiction where 
you know, it's not just straight, flat, rectangular lots. Uh, what is the administrative remedy that, that, what is the menu of possibilities? Well, again, the menu there, well, I don't, I don't know if you call it a menu. If they can't meet the standards, um, they would have to go through a discretionary process. Um, and I'm not sure what your process is for a variance, but that's not a ministerial process. So any, uh, uh, if someone can't meet the standards, and I'll say that with a caveat, which I can explain in just a second, they're gonna have to step back and go through the typical process that they've been going through. Now that said, and you could perhaps get into this in a hillside condition. If one of the standards, well, let's say there's a parcel and it's on a, the parcel is zoned to allow, let's say 20 dwelling units per acre. If, if there's an objective standard, let's just say a massing standard that would force the developer to make changes to the building such that they can't actually meet the development or the, the zoning yield that they're allowed, then they could perhaps get around it that way. We can't, we can't have a standard that precludes someone from being able to develop what they have a right to develop, whether it's density or, or whatever. But I think most of these things you're talking about are gonna kick it back into, if someone's not meeting the standards, it's going to kick it back into a, um, uh, your typical discretionary process that you use in Castro Valley. Great, but so there was one one other thing um, that uh, you kind of touched upon, and I'm not sure. I know that this kind of overlaps with um, with uh, the housing element and density and all of these things. Um, I noticed that SB 167 shows that um, that local government may not deny or de not deny reduced density. Like for example, there are parcels that, you know, you could probably get 30 or 40 units an acre on, but, um, and let's just say that it ends up being 20 or 30 and it doesn't meet, you know, the maximum. They can't be forced into that type of development or project. Is that, am I reading this correctly? Wait, are you saying that if someone's allowed 20 dwelling units per acre, but they come in with a project that's 15 units on an acre, yeah, you can no, you can't force them to develop more. Okay. Right. Unless unless there is a standard that sets out a minimum. If there's a minimum stand, you know, minimum density requirement, then they would have to meet it. But um, I don't think you can force somebody to develop more units okay. than they I just want to I just want to make sure I you know the thing is is that um, one of the speakers was commenting about you know thousands of housing units being built in Dublin and Hayward and everything else but each community is kind of laid out differently some of them have um, a lot more open area there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that go into this and they seem to overlay these blanket uh, numbers on communities without anything you know, defining, you know, some of these uh, restrictive areas and, and things like that. So I, you know, I'm just, I just want to make sure that, you know, that we don't turn around and say, okay, we're going to have to force every commercial property into housing within our community when it was never designed for that. Right. You know, that's all. And I, and. Um, well, and then the other thing to take into account with Dublin is there's still a lot of open, open, uh, open area, let's call yeah, it. Land. And it's also doesn't have, I mean, there are hills, but it doesn't have the topography issues 
right. the, the degree that you have in Castro Valley. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Sure. Thank you, Ken. Uh, great questions. Council Member Padro. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and good evening, Mr. Tom Ford. Hi. Thank you for your presentation this evening. I wanted to follow up. I, my question was uh, related to uh, uh, Ken's, and that is topography. We've seen a number of development projects come before us in the last year or so that is taking up open space uh, that oftentimes will impact, uh, let me call it qualities of life that the original owners in that area enjoyed as part of their property benefit, if you will. But then all of a sudden with the incursion of other developments, some of those benefits are impeded, such as views, such as uh, uh, open space and that kind of thing. How are we going to distinguish between subjective versus uh, objective standards when it comes to that. Now, I don't know if that's too specific a point, but uh, I, I just, once again, because we have things that wanna be built below a, a, a rise, uh, and yet its height will, may impede or take away some view, how, how do we put that in standard form? Um, I'm pretty sure Rodrigo can help me here, but I'm pretty sure it probably already is. All of those parcels that you mentioned, if they allow residential development, if it's a piece of open space, I assume you're talking about a piece of open space that allows residential development. Exactly. Um, it's already has a density. The, the county zoning ordinance already has a, a density applied to it. It has a maximum height. Hopefully what some of these standards that we're producing and your 2014 document is producing is that it just doesn't go up as a big box. It goes up and meets that height. We're trying to find ways to break up the massing uh, because you can't deny that person what they, if their parcel has a, a development, a right to development that's a certain density and a certain height, they're allowed to do that. But perhaps we can find ways in these development standards, these objective standards to uh, to soften the, the the footprint, to modulate the massing, to do things to break it up, but we haven't done anything to change existing um, height and density restrictions that the county already has in place. I guess part of my concern is the fact that since Castro Valley is primarily a infill you know community, it doesn't have the the space availability that the San Ramones that the Dublins may have. Uh, is people have accustomed, this, accustomed themselves to the open space surrounding their properties, and yet it may well be zoned for, for residential. And then all of a sudden a project comes in and they're not understanding. Uh, and we're, we're trying to find in terms of the existing zoning ordinances. Uh, and then we come with guidelines that must be purely standard as opposed to objective. So yeah, so so a couple of, of um, site specific, Castro Valley specific uh, responses to that. Uh, we have no um, view ordinance in the county on purpose. That that would be uh, it, it, the county has deemed it uh, very difficult to to enforce what how much of a view people have. There have been certain developments that have been restricted, and I'm actually thinking one on Castro Valley on Page Street, the vacant. Parcel on Page and Miramar. Yes. 
um, that has a view restriction and the zoning was changed specifically to restrict the height of the houses. So the, there is a zoning district specific to that project property, a, a plan development zoning district specific to that property to restrict the height of the of those houses so that the views across the street can be preserved. And this was done in the 80s and it uh, is still in effect today. Overall, more broadly, uh, we do not have um, uh, a, a combining district or, or a policy or any other land use regulation that protects views. We do have, like Tom was talking about, the allowable heights, right? So, so if there is a, a vacant piece of property that's that's not this specific plan development district that I just talked about on Page and Miramar, if there's a vacant piece of property and the neighbors have a view that the neighbor enjoys, there is nothing currently, nor do the objective standards establish a preservation of that view. That protects that view. With, yeah, yeah. yeah, the person with a vacant property could still develop their house to 25 feet or 30 feet if certain conditions of those apply um, towards the center of the lot. You can go above 25 feet. That <clears throat> was in place and it remains in place with these objective standards. Uh, what the objective standards further do is on that house that goes up next to the neighbor that's you will be blocked. Um, the objective standards um, require more of a more of a stepping back, more of a of a uh, architectural articulation to preserve um, uh, to to create a more a more um, a softer look, if you will. Uh, and what we're trying to do is quantify the softer look. We're trying to quantify fit in your context. We're trying to quantify all these things that we've been using as guidelines in the past, but people find difficult to agree on uh, and are subject to, to uh, discretion. What we're trying to do for the sake of compliance with state regulations on uh, uh, streamlining housing, but also to give the uh, developers and the neighbors a clear black and white definition of what's allowable, we're trying to quantify all those terms. And that's what this exercise in objective standards is, yes. is taking all our guidelines that we've been that we've had and, and the discretion that we've been using and trying to quantify it within the confines of our existing allowable heights, required setbacks, um, and, and uh, floor area ratios, that kind of thing. Well, to eliminate any kind of pushback that we might get, I can see this being a, a real educational process for homeowners, particularly that have had their properties and just in, enjoyed certain amenities that they had, had no idea that zoning may or may not impact down the road. Right. Anyway. And, and so, yeah, so this, this definitely, you know, there's, there's still going to be folks that are, that are asking, well, why am I view blocked? And the, and the answer is, well, because the person to the vacant lot has a right to develop that lot. Okay. Thank you. Councilmember Padro, we good? If so, we'll move on to Ilya. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Ford, for your presentation. Um, uh, I think I have a simple question. Uh, as I was looking through the uh, objective standards that you've assembled here, uh, I, would, I would characterize a lot of the um, uh, definitions as just like humane design choices. So articulating facades and creating open space and green space between uh, properties and the like. Um, I guess my question is, um, 
and and because they it, of it seems generally like you know just good good design choices. I'm wondering how unique are the um, standards that are being designed here to Castro Valley, or is it universal across um, all of Alameda County, or is this the kind of standard that is now becoming predominant just sort of generally in in this kind of thing? Are there things that are sort of particular to um, any of the aspects of um, our local community that that are making their way into these standards? So I'll answer first, and then I'll let let Tom um, give more sure. detail. But but the idea is to come up with one set of objective standards for unincorporated county, mm -hmm. right? So so the idea is to try and um, standardize as much as possible the regulation so that somebody who's in Castro Valley versus um, pick your other parts of unincorporated county will be able to, to clearly understand what um, the, the standards are. And I realize that we have, for example, in Castro Valley, the, the implementation of the general plan created Castro Valley specific zoning districts, the small lot residential and, and uh, residential mixed density, et cetera. Um, and, and, that's that's great in that there is a, a, a already an established allowable densities and allowable lotting pattern um, specific to Castro Valley. The Fairview specific plan has its own regulations about density and et cetera. But but the the actual construction that goes up, we're trying to make sure that it's that as much as possible we all understand it. Not only staff but developers and and the community at large. We all understand it, and and you're going to get what we're presenting to the to the communities is is that we're going to get a standardized objective standards for all of unincorporated Alameda County, knowing that the the densities, for example, the RSL, the residential small lot zoning district, is unique to Castro Valley. It allows for really small lots and setbacks, and within those small lots and setbacks, these the architecture, the the, the third dimension of it, what goes up out of the ground. Um, is, you know, you've still got your 25 foot height limit, you've still got uh, the articulation that's required over a certain amount. Um, so, so yeah, what we, what we would not want, because we already have this, and it's getting very confusing, is all these rules, and depending on the geography, and depending on um, uh, East County uh, agricultural areas, or rural agricultural areas, and Buena Vista Avenue or in the Fairview Hills versus the Crow Canyon uh, Canyons versus um, Madison Avenue versus the west side of Castro Valley versus et cetera, um, we, we are getting potential for different height re regulations or, or uh, as, as minute and as fine grain as different parking space sizes. And, and we're trying to standardize as, as much as possible. I don't know if that was too much of an answer or or tangential to the answer you wanted. Never too much of an answer. Thank you, Rodrigo. And Tom, I don't know if you have anything to that. No, I, I would I would just go with what you said, except I, I do want to uh, come back to something you said, Mr. Prokopop. Um, you used the word humane. <laughs> and in a sense, since we, we came into this project not wanting to... Um, change any of the underlying zoning that a parcel has 
or the height, the density, height, things like that. Um, that's kind of what we're left with. And so you came up with the description you made, but um, some communities are calling these objective design standards. Some people are just, some jurisdictions are just calling them objective standards, but that's really where we're left. If we're not gonna talk about changing setbacks, changing height, changing zoning, changing lot coverage, it is what are the design features that you can enforce upon a facade or a or a building mass that are going to make it more uh, appealing and more uh, fitting into the neighborhood. Thank you. Oh, and then also let me just point out one thing. When you you also brought up the subject, you know, Castro Valley specific. Back at the very beginning, before we even met with the working group once, we didn't just go to the 2014 uh, countywide or West County Development Standards and Design Guidelines. We also looked at each of the uh, community's individual documents, such as the Castro Valley General Plan. So we looked through there for some soft policy language that there might have been a way to try to firm up. It still came into this document that hopes to go countywide, but we did go into each of the communities and look what they already had, look at what they already had in the way of um, intent, design intent, and tried to respond to it that way. Thank you. Oh, and one more thing. Um, you guys, you guys pretty soon are going to have um, a Castro Valley downtown specific plan. And that in itself will have its own um, design sta uh, objective standards. Back a long time ago, maybe 18 months ago, when we got started, the idea was with Rodrigo that those our project and that project would be more synchronized. And we would write standards that looked like the way they're writing standards. I think for whatever reason, I'm not sure what it is, that project has fallen behind us now, but you have that opportunity, at least for that plan area, to have objective standards that are very specific to the type of development that you'll want to see in your downtown specific plan area. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Um, Shannon, do you have anything you want to ask or say? All right. Um, then I have a, a few thoughts and questions. First, I, I think this is horrendously important. I mean, this is so vital to reaching our read in numbers, to tracking the developer community, to um, bring the people that we want to see in Castro Valley. And I support uh, support you all. And I think it's a is a good presentation and a great project. Um, I'm a little chagrined that there weren't wasn't more participation by the development community, the developer community. I heard one developer maybe participated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, I, I'd hate to get two thirds of the way down the path and and have a developer come and say, "Oh my God, you know what this is going to do to my costs if I've got to articulate and I've got to do this and step back." And I, I just, you know, I will sleep better if I know that um, there is some level of acceptance and buy off in the developer community um, before we before we write this in stone. Um, okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, in terms of some of the specifics, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm a weed kind of guy. And, um, 
This applies to five plus units. Is that correct? The, the, the objective standards for multifamily and mixed use apply to five so, plus units or? So, yeah, so it applies for all SB 330 projects, which is all projects that are more than one unit. Oh. So, so it applies to subdivisions. That's why, and the uh, uh, members, uh, Thomas and Moore, may not have seen this during the workshops, but we, um, from experience with uh, a, a subdivision in Fairview, which was, um, I'll go into the details, but, but uh, there was a subdivision in Fairview, the language in the Fairview specific plan, which closely matches the Castro Valley lot size consistency policy, um, that that language was accused of being too um, discretionary, not not um, uh, specific enough, not not black enough. Okay. And and um, subdivisions are considered to be uh, SB three thirty projects. They're they're more than one unit uh, ultimately being developed. Okay. And so we added this provision of modifying the proposing a modification to the Castro Valley law size consistency policy and the Fairview specific plans law size consistency language to make it a more quantitative. And so the answer to your question is yes, this applies to projects of more than one unit. Okay. Uh, so not, not ADUs, but you know, uh, duplexes and above or two units and above. Okay, thank you. And, and I'm sorry because I, I got that five or more units from uh, the standards A1.11 um, for access. So I'm guessing that that number five just applies to regarding access for five or more units. Is that if how it's I a project that has five or more units? If, it, if it's a project that has five or more. Uh, can yeah. you tell me which document is that in the multifamily or the townhome? Multifamily. Okay, well, I'll, page, I'll look at it. Page one of fourteen. A one dot one Yeah, and and part of that is because for smaller projects like like and this this would likely be um, echoing the design standards. Sure. If you've got projects of four or fewer parcels. We'll allow, for example. Um, well, I'll, I'll say it in reverse. When you've got projects of five or more uh, units, we mm -hmm. require a separation between the pedestrian and the driveway, right? The pedestrian path and the driveway. Gotcha. The gotcha. anticipation is five or more units, you're going to have 10 cars coming in a driveway. And with people walking, you, you want to separate the, the vehicles from the pedestrians. Projects sure. with four or fewer units, um, there is a, a more of a tolerance for people and cars being on the same space, a driveway, uh, you would differentiate the, the, the pedestrian walk walking area with different paving uh, pattern from the car area so that visually you, a car driving down this, this driveway, even though there's pedestrians there, knows, okay, watch out for pedestrians because over by the edge, there's a different uh, uh, um, pattern, uh, mm -hmm. paving pattern. And so, it doesn't require as much space, so we allow for um, the development to to occur. Uh, but but that that sidewalk separation it may not be necessary because there's fewer units. So there's some there's some regulations that are uh, more appropriate for more units 
Yeah. And there's some that we considered, again, going uh, dovetailing from the residential design standards and guidelines saying, okay, well, if you've got a few number of units, then, then there could be a blending between vehicle space and pedestrian space, or perhaps your setback separation between the, the property line and, the, and the, the, the landscaping requirement could be reduced because you know, it's, it's, it, 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 such, so much landscaping may not be necessary on a smaller scale project. Gotcha. Thank you. Appreciate that. A um, couple of other thoughts. Uh, questions really. Um, so if I'm developing a multifamily and I'm looking at the objective standards and I see that I've got a requirement for trees and I've got a requirement for materials, two types of materials to be used on a facade, um, I know exactly where to go to find out what's acceptable um, for those for those items. Uh, you know, what trees meet the meet the requirements, what are the acceptable um, siding materials that, that work. I mean, those are not envisioned to be part of these objective standards. That would be ministerially handled at the counter with planning staff. Is that how that would work? Yeah, so you want to see like a list or you're thinking that there would be a list of acceptable materials and a list of acceptable trees? Yes. Is that not? So so uh, we require the the... Public Works Agency produces a list of drought tolerant tree. Well, there's two answers to that question. The, the Public Works Agency produces a list of drought tolerant trees that they use for street trees. And we actually um, have uh, adopted that as a policy for trees that are favorable for, for um, development on private property, right? So these are drought tolerant trees that uh, don't affect uh, their their root system does not affect the the piping, etc. Secondly, um, the state has a published list um, of the state has a published regulation and requirement for drought tolerant landscaping. Whenever you install landscaping, you have to make sure that the water use is less than an allotted amount of water that there's some formula that the state came sure. up with. And we've adopted that. Uh, it's called uh, the Water Efficient Landscape Ordinance, the Wellow. So we've adopted that Wellow. And even if we didn't adopt it, the state forces you to, to follow the state's Wellow if you don't adopt your own. We've adopted the state Wellow and we have um, required that landscaping conform with Wellow. Mm -hmm. And also in the... the okay, good. Okay, so, so that's, that's, it's not a published list of trees, but right. trees listed have to conform with. I, my only concern is that is that someone's watching that. I mean, if this is going to be a ministerial process and 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 it's not going to come to us to look at um, landscape choices and siding, et cetera, et cetera, that that staff is is on that and able to able to direct accordingly. So right. Right. the answer and I heard so is yes. So uh, I believe, um, so, so siting is different, right? Technology changes all the time. Right. I mean, the, the standards that I see here prohibit siting and, or plywood siting and scored plywood siting. So if I'm a developer, I know what my other choices are, you know, rock facade or brick or whatever. Well, so pretty much, the sky, you know, pretty much then everything else would be applicable. Now, 
in Castro Valley, traditionally, there has been a preference for warmer finishes mm-hmm. versus metal, right? Somebody comes in with housing, right. with metal siding, siding or glass siding, that kind of thing. We didn't regulate against it. We're not so so. This would be something that could come in, and somebody could say, "Hey, I've got more of a modern look to my finish." And we'd say, okay, at staff level. So if this board is not comfortable with that, then I think that would be a good discussion point that you that we'd have to define what warm materials are, right? Or or we'd have to we'd have to look at um, what a certain palette is. Uh, the the current Castro Valley specific plan allows for three colors, and I we think at staff level that's too restrictive. Everybody, everything has got to be some kind of shade of 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 beige mm-hmm. uh, with with highlights uh, that are stronger colors in downtown Castro. And you know that that's presented issues that some think it's too restrictive, too generic, et cetera. So so in in trying to define allowable materials, um, if it's not on the list, that could be a problem if if we think it's it's a, a good material. But if you want to, and I'm not saying the extreme, if you want to, if you want to head towards, hey, well, you know, Santa Barbara restricts an architectural style and Spanish colonial and blah, 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 that's, you know, warm, that's, that's a certain style. Or if you want warm colors or warm materials, if you want that quantified, we need to figure out a way to quantify it. But if you want people to be more expressive um, without a lot of discretion, then, then that's what we're presenting to you tonight. Hmm. Yeah, I want to hold that, that question thought for the, for the balance of the council at the end of this discussion, maybe. Um, one standard B.1.1 in the multifamily um, specifies um, length of a facade length of 60 feet before the, the requirements kick in. I mean, if I'm a developer, do I just de facto submit everything at 59 feet so I don't have to go through the the, the, the hassle of the articulation and the indentation, et cetera? Um, you might, but actually it's not trying to prohibit it. It's just trying to enforce um some variety enforce mm-hmm. a change so i mean okay. 59 feet yeah 59 feet is less than 60 so you would qualify but you can't do 61 without right. you know, you have to have some sort of variation okay so i, I every 60 feet i apologize the bad bad quote maybe the better question is why is 60 feet the magic number or the right number in this case? Um, basically, we're just looking at sort of a module. Um, everything we try to relate back to a pedestrian scale. So, um, you know, uh, storefront bays are usually measured at 25 to 30 feet on, mm-hmm. a, on a typical storefront in a Main Street retail format. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just doubled that, kind of came up with 60 feet. Also, if it's too onerous, it just makes it more expensive to build. But we did, again, we were just trying to enforce some variation. Sure, sure, sure. sure. 
No, I, I can't say this right off the top of my head, but we might have pulled that from the design guidelines. Maybe okay. the design guidelines suggested it, but didn't uh, use it with enforcement language. I think I think you're right. Um, all right. On to, I have two questions on the townhouse standards. Um, B1.3 uses the term daylight facing as a, as a standard, um, is that specific enough? You know, you cited earlier about Santa Barbara and uh, them being sued. I don't know, is, is daylight facing uh, specific enough? Well, it's, it's pretty specific. Uh, basically, we're trying to distinguish from the party wall. So um, okay. you would have to, you would have to, um, enforce that massing variation on a wall that people can see, either the uh -huh. neighbors or yeah. your townhouse uh, neighbor. Uh, Chair, Chair Mulgrew, there is a, on page uh, one of nine of the definitions, attachment C, townhome objective standards, townhome uh, objective standards definitions, daylight facing is defined as a facade or architectural element that faces the exterior of the building, as opposed to a wall that separates individual residential units within a townhome building. Thank you. So there is, there is, yeah. So some of these terms are, okay. uh, they're terms of art that, that merit definition. So we went ahead and defined them. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, last, and then Ken can come back and join us. Um, B3.6 uh, specifies a six foot offset for windows facing balconies and such in the townhome. Uh, standards, but in the multifamily mixed use, it's an eight foot um, offset. Is there a reason for that? Um, I can't recall specifically why we did it. The only thing I can think of is the townhome building might be a smaller building than a multifamily one entry building. And so we were trying to respond to um, just the smaller facade that might be between two buildings. Again, it only kicks in if the two buildings are within 20 feet of each other anyway. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, is there a, a situation where a multifamily development might also include townhomes? And if so, which would apply? Uh, I think the one that's a net going back to what Rodrigo was saying earlier, the right. Definitions at the beginning of each document basically describe a housing type. So mm -hmm. for instance, if someone came in with a project and they had you know, a 10 acre site and they were gonna do some multifamily and some townhomes, yeah. uh, we've designed this. We believe that this is, they would take one document and apply it to the townhome um, typology yeah. and take the other document and apply it to the multifamily or mixed use typology. Awesome. And uh, Chair Mulgrew, this was similar to the, is it the City Ventures project that had on Castle yep. Valley Boulevard and yep. Norbridge? So similar similar um, differentiation between the two typologies was applied there with the current de design standards and guidelines for the for the multifamily mixed use mm -hmm. based Castle Valley Boulevard. We said, okay, these units are required less open space and the height is allowed right. to be taller uh, above the commercial and the setbacks are different. The units in the back that are townhomes uh, with uh, ADUs right. in them, 
those would have townhome development standards. And so those would be shorter with more yard space uh, behind that kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, lot size, and I'm sorry for this is my last question, and then we'll get Ken's hand addressed. Um, hypothetically, let's say the mean lot size for a, for an area is 7,000 square feet, and I've got a 10,000 square foot lot that I want to subdivide. Um, how do I how do I go about that since I so here's a here's a controversial recommendation. Let's just get rid of lot size consistency requirements. Um, we could do that uh, and just go with a lot minimums. But but I believe, and this is just you know your humble servant staff level uh, recommendation. Um, but but in Castro Valley and in Fairview, the intent was to uh, keep the neighborhoods in general as they were, right? So there were the the, the lot minimums, right. but but the the policies at the time reflected community uh, desires at the time to to still consider, no, 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 our neighborhoods, even though the minimum lot size is 7,000, but the average of the lots in the neighborhood are 10,000, we should really still keep it to an average of 10,000. That's That's been the... Um, that's been the policy based on community desires from the past few decades. Um, so we try to stick with that policy, but quantify it, thinking, okay, well, we we you know our understanding of Castro Valley is that is that that's still the intent. <clears throat> if the intent, as reflected by your body and the planning commission, et cetera, changes such that we all believe that we should get rid of the lot size consistency requirement and just stick to the lot size minimums. Then, then staff would be okay with that. Anybody have thoughts on that? Ken? Yes. Um, thanks, for, thanks for your patience, Ken. Yeah, no worries. I you just made you just gave me more things to talk about. So thanks. <laughs> <for>. <laughs> um, so, all right, let's just stay on lot sites consist consistency for a moment. So I've been in, on the Mac long enough to know and understand where Rodrigo's coming from on a lot of these things. One of the things that I believe, the problem was is people taking advantage of no lot size consistency and, and basically putting, trying to put something, basically these planned neighborhoods, they just were being destroyed by just inconsistent construction projects. But Rodrigo, what would happen? And I, and I see this coming in, we've got less and less lots to develop. And some of them are not going to, if you've got 10,000 lot, uh, 10,000 square foot minimums in a neighborhood, and you've got a lot, uh, a lot that say 26 or 27,000 square feet, you can't really get it into three lots. Maybe what we ought to do is come up with, um, for lot size consistency, is maybe a percentage of reduction based on a lot split um, that could work in a neighborhood, because a lot of times it can. You know, if you had, say, a 15, uh, you're going to do uh, three lots, a 27,000 square foot lot, you're going to cut it into three, allow a 15% reduction in, say, the third lot or all of them together. Maybe there's a way to make something like that work versus just eliminating the chance that we could add more housing based on the fact that we can't meet the lot size consistency. Rodrigo, any thoughts? <laughs> 
I don't think we should get rid of it entirely, but I, I do think that there should be some latitude on things that don't quite conform, but could. Well, so so we want to we want to quantify as much as possible, right? So so we need to sit down and figure out if if so. Are you saying that the language as drafted right now doesn't? So we we try to keep we try to keep the lot size consistency policy turn it into a standard. Correct. So does the standard as drafted not do what you want it to do, and how? Well, I'm just I'm thinking that um, as as lots start to diminish. And let's say that I have um, a 9,000 square foot lot and the ability to put that into two 5,000 square foot lots, say it's zoned for 5,000. Mm -hmm. And I can't really split it because that puts one at 4,000 and one at 5,000. Mm -hmm. but, but the thing is, is that's really not wrong. And, if, and, and in some situations, if there was a, you know, maybe we had something where there was a, a, a percentage of reduction on a lot split in a situation where there was no, you know, there was no other way to make it conform, but it it could work in a um in a certain area. Maybe it's something that comes to the Mac. I'm just thinking, trying to think outside the box. I mean, we've done yeah. this from everything from the chicken ranch. I mean, the stuff that's happened over the years. Um, I think that if we had some opportunity to be able to negotiate a little bit on the lot size consistency, it might be helpful for the planning department and also mm -hmm. for some of these more restrictive lots. Thank you, Ken. Okay, but I have more. Okay. That's, that's the first thing. Chuck, are you gonna to wanna to talk about lot size or something else? Uh, I was just gonna comment on the lot size. Um, oh. my, my concern is if I was in a neighborhood, I would really, I would really want lot size consistency to remain um, there because if I had a seventh or a 9,000 square foot lot and my neighbor had a 9,000 square foot lot and he wanted to split it to a five and a four, um, and there were five or six other 9,000 square foot lots, I, I would I would not want that. That's uh, not what I said, Chuck. Okay, I swear I'm, I want, I'm asking. Oh, it's, no. I, I'm going to make sure that that's not what you're saying. No, a lot of times we have these non-conforming lots. If the neighborhood is 5,000 square foot lots and you happen to have a 9,000 square foot lot, it has the ability, well, you could put an ADU on it. You could get around it. But the point is, is that if there was a way of splitting it legitimately at 40, you know, or at 5,000 and a 4,000 or a 45 and a 45, it's not going to, 500 square foot, it's not going to make that much difference on a 5,000 square foot lot. You just happen to have a large, a larger lot. And it's left over from, you know, a previous development that never got built or it just, mm -hmm was expensed out somehow like that. I'm just asking. I'm not saying that, you know, because, you know, if you have a 30,000 square foot lot in a 10,000 square foot lot neighborhood, you know, it can be cut up too. You know, wouldn't, a lot of this, wouldn't a lot of this go to a public hearing anyway um, when you post it and we get feedback from the community that they're in? Make well, that, we had to grant that or not? So, so let me just give you the example that happened in Fairview, and and you know we're not talking specifics, so I won't give the address, but because that's not on the agenda. But right. but there was a there was a proposal for a four lot subdivision in Fairview, and the the minimum lot size requirement, let's say, was was five thousand, right? So this is a this is a, a twenty two thousand square foot lot that we're going to split it into four lots. So each is going to be result in a little bit over five thousand square feet. We think great. 
because that the 5,000 is the minimum lot size. So so far, all the boxes are checked. However, Fairview, much like Castro Valley, has a lot size consistency um, language that says that if your surrounding parcels, the average is 6,000 square feet, then your resulting lot sizes have to be 6,000 square feet, not five, not the minimum. They have to conform with the average lot size in the neighborhood. And so the language was um, not specific enough because it said you have to be uh, in substantial conformance with the lot size in the neighborhood of the surrounding of the surrounding neighborhood with a district tract of land. And those words, district tract of land and substantial conformance were considered to be not clear enough. And so the developer hired an attorney. The attorney said, you guys are not conforming with SB 330. We ran to our attorneys and we said, ha, they're wrong. We do conform with SB 330 because we've got this written policy in black and white. And it's in the specific plan that got adopted by the Board of Supervisors. And they said, no, the language is not specific enough. You're using um, words that are not terms that are not specific. You're using substantial conformance. You're using a uh, uh, prevailing neighborhood. So we're trying, we, we said, okay, we, we consider that Castro Valley has a, has a, um, a regulation that, that would require, uh, we consider that Castro Valley has a policy that would still require the lot size consistency. We understand that. We need to make this policy more black and white. And so, so um, the result of Fairview was the uh, the our attorney said you can't enforce this. You need to allow the four unit development the subdivision because this is not enforceable. So we're trying to come up with an enforceable lot size consistency policy. And and what better place to do this than the objective same? So sure. so if we can do that. Uh, if we can, if we can say, um, give us, give us quantifiable definition of, okay, uh, what is a neighborhood? What, what is substantial conformance? If, if we can get that into black and white, quantifiable by the numbers, then we think we've got a defensible loss. Wait, of Rod so Rod Rodrigo, I have, I have a, I have one, I, I can give you that exact statement. Okay. That you're looking for, but I don't know if this is even. I mean, I'm just tossing it out there. Mm -hmm. But um, let's say that um, first of all, the lot size consistency is the first calculation that's made, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say it's six thousand square foot per lot. Mm -hmm. Let's say that if the lot has the ability to be cut into two or more lots, actually, yeah, two or two or more lots. Then and the third anything over the first two that have to conform to the existing lot size consistency. The third lot, if it is within say X percentage of that minimum lot size, then it it should be approved. Like say fifteen percent, say uh, just something that just gets it right under the wire that gives you some flexibility to add that third lot if everything else conforms. Is that possible? Uh, it could be. I'm deferring here to Tom since they've got more experience on the right. language. Right. I think that goes into the first part of the statement where we say same size as or larger than. We could just we could write language that says within 10% or 15% of the mean of those parcels being measured. 
But does that even make any sense? I'm just tossing yeah. it out there. These are things that have come across the Mac over the years. Right. And we've ended up with two lots instead of three. And sometimes it's on a corner. I mean, there's always that that one thing that doesn't quite fit. Yeah. That's the only reason I said that. And if this doesn't make any sense, then let's just kill this because I got a I got a different question for you anyway. Makes, makes great sense, Ken. Uh, oh, okay. All well, right. And again, the, the, you know, we're 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 approaching this thinking. We think the community still still wants lot size consistency, but if, but if the answer is right. no, actually we can do without it. Then we can do you know, just a little. Well, don't I don't I wouldn't I'm not wording it that way, Rodrigo. It's not no, no, I, I, don't I want lot that. size consistency. I understand. That. I'm just saying yeah. that there's you know there's there's the the full breadth of choices, right? Right. I just want to make sure that we have flexibility to allow for those things that don't conform, because yeah. we've been down this road and you know sentencing an applicant or a property owner. To literal hell to try to do anything more than this and go in circles versus to be able to get a solid answer. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of, I think, why we're here. And um, so trying to minimize that. You're, you know, you can't, have, if I heard you right, you know, it's um, lots have to conform. Lots have to conform as they will. And if there is any leftover non-conforming, you know, two or more, as you say, if there's any leftover non-conforming that's within 90% of the, of the number. Yeah. And we ran into that on you, Ewing. Um, yes. And then Shannon's got a question. I, yeah, uh, Shannon's up. Yeah. Well, Shannon, are you lot size? <laughs> yeah, it's in relation to this. Isn't that the point of the variance? If there are, if we want some uh, flexibility in if we want standard language to address lot size consistency, and there are examples of lots that aren't quite, that don't quite fit, um, as far as the checklist is concerned, isn't, isn't that where a variance would come into play? Because aren't we, are, we're talking about going through a checklist and being able to apply certain standards, but that doesn't exclude certain proper lots or, or development from, from moving forward, it just would, um, they would, would add, have to go to a, like additional review, correct? Am I understanding that correctly? It's going to add a layer. Standard? Yeah, it's going to yeah. add an entire layer. Yeah. It's going to add a layer to this. We're trying to streamline and clean this up. Yeah, and I get so that. giving that as an opportunity, fine, maybe, but if, I mean, it's just another layer. I don't know. We're going back to where we were before. But wouldn't it be better to have like a design standard? And then if they're the exceptions would then, because how many exceptions are we going to have? Obviously if we've had them over the years, but as far as having the effectiveness of a checklist and having objective design standards, wouldn't it be better to have that consistency? And then when there are the properties or lots that are don't quite fit that have have that opportunity then for additional review. Isn't that well I would think if it was more than 10%, I would agree. But I'm talking about a little wiggle room to be able to get this stuff to go through without another, you know, six months of of going through the process. We're trying to minimize and clean up what we're what we're imposing on all applicants to do these projects. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fine. It was just an idea. I mean, if that's, it is what it is. Not well. Is the point is the point to be ministerial as much as possible? Um, 
or to be so. or to yes. be subjective. You know, that's yeah. Yeah. The point is to be the point is to be as black and white as possible to comply with the state legislation on two or more units <laughs> right. need these standards. Yep. Well, it depends. We just want to add a layer on. We go that way, or we come up with some flexibility. Otherwise, um, I have a different question for Tom. Go for it, Ken. Yeah. So, Tom, um, how many years have you been doing this? The Alameda County Project. <laughs> well, no. I, I'm sure it feels like that, but I mean, in general, I mean, you mean my my career? Yes. Um, I started, I got out of graduate school in about 1980, no, 1992. So I've been working in planning since then. So the reason I'm asking you this question is because your experience and your being part of this team has a, a value to us. The thing is, is that a comment that uh, Bill had made and kind of to piggyback on what Ilya said, um, you know, we have a lot of these standards that, you know, you've put in place here, right? You know, setbacks, building, we're talking about dimensions and, and all these characteristics and open space. Are these pretty much standardized throughout, you know, some successful cities where you have seen what we're actually proposing here? And I mean, obviously you're giving us your best um, estimate, but I mean, are these things standardized in other cities very close to what we're proposing here? Or is a lot of this been taken from other documents that have been successful? Yes. The okay. short answer is yes. The long answer is, for instance, earlier the chair asked about the offset for the um, balcony. That's, um, yeah. We're not using the same exact dimensions, but we took that from a Santa Barbara case study where privacy was the issue and they're trying to figure out how to control or provide greater privacy. So they allow the buildings to be a lot closer. But so for instance, we got that from case study, from uh, that case study from Santa Barbara. While we've been working on your project, we've been also, as uh, Rodrigo mentioned earlier, working in Los Gatos, which is partly flat, partly um, hilly. Um, their council adopted our standards um, in November. Um, they're not as big, they're not as large scale of a community as you might see on some of your corridors. Some of your parcels are, still pretty big. So we are, we've been using these ideas around in, in, we've been gathering input from other places. We looked at the Dublin um, objective standards that were published or adopted maybe six, eight, 10 months ago. So a lot of different input from that, but it's not, a, but we're not just taking and saying, well, it's 10 feet here. So it must work 10 feet in Castro Valley. We try to like think about well, what is the ten feet? Right. So. Collectively, that's where all this information came from. Because I did want to kind of just, you know, Bill had brought up some important points, and I just wanted to understand how those things were actually gathered. Correct. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's all I got. Thank you. All right. Wish I would come back to uh, Rodrigo's question of of level, I guess, of flexibility that's allowed in uh, design guidelines, siding materials, landscaping, tree choice, roofing materials, things of that nature. Um, is that a discussion that anybody's interested in, in having, whether we as a council or ask, you know, ask Rodrigo and company? Nope. But, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. It looked like Ilya's hand was up first. Go for it, Ken. Okay. Um, really quick, again, Tom, 
Do you see in other communities that the what Bill's asking for is something that communities are looking for? Or is it something that's a little more general? My concern would be having a document that we're going to keep for another 20 years and having new materials come to market and things that don't make it on the list and all these things that kind of have happened already to us. Um, I, sure. I don't think it's going to stop. So I'll just say three things real quickly. One, I think uh, Rodrigo covered the whole landscaping and trees issue. Any project is going to have to go through the WELO standards. So the landscaping issues are covered. Um, color, I think you should stay away from it. <laughs> color is just a hard thing to regulate. Uh, some communities have actually tried to regulate uh, reflectance value. And even that is, gets really kind of wonky. So I would stay away from colors because, first of all, you can spend a lot of time trying to develop standards and regulations. And then a year after the building's built, they can paint the building. So you can only control the color for so long anyway. But the one that I'm, I was really thinking about is the chairman was talking about materials. It's actually easier for us to write standards of prohibited materials, which is, mm -hmm. I think, what he saw. Because if you try to make a list of all the materials that right. are going to be okay, somebody could still do it badly. Or that, that list is going to change. Uh, technology changes, um, materials that are available to contract construction change. It's easier to prohibit a few things. That's just my input on all three of those issues. I understand. And Ilya, before we get to you, I just want to address what, what Ken was saying. And that is, you know, I wasn't, I'm not coming from a place of suggesting that we delineate materials or landscaping, uh, tree types or fauna, whatever. I, I'm op reopening the question of, of does the council want to talk about more flexibility or less flexibility in how we operate? That was it. So, um, Ilya, go ahead. My, yeah, my, my point just uh, relates directly to that, um, Bill. It's um, uh, we should let architects be architects. Uh, I don't think um, we will set standards that are preferable to what um, professionals who think about this all the time do. Um, and uh, I very much echo what Ken was saying. I think the um, nature of materials, particularly as we become progressively more um, uh, smart about things that are um, uh, diminishing energy usage and stuff like that should be, we should allow for maximum application of those things as they come online, mm -hmm. my opinion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chuck. I was just going to say materials seem to change with the environment pretty regularly. I mean, with the fires that we've had um, in the past, I mean, my house I just built is a, uh, a hardy board siding that looks like wood, but it's concrete. Mm -hmm. And I built it because I don't want it to burn down. And um, as materials improve and it allows us to um, keep our resources like trees and things like that um, in the forest. Um, I, I think that um, we, we gotta be careful with material. I would like, uh, you said, let, let the architects be architects. Good, thank you, Jeff. All right, any other thoughts, questions, wrapping this up for uh, Mr. Ford and company? 
Tom, do you do you have what you? Oh, Ilya, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I just I don't yeah. know if um, I don't know if we need to, but uh, I wasn't necessarily sensing that we had given uh, clear direction or clear input on the lot size consistency points that were being discussed. I, so maybe, Mr. Ford, if what your perspectives are, that would be good to hear. Well, I didn't hear enough to cause me to go away and do anything differently. However, and I'm not sure that Mr. Carbone is suggesting this, but I think we can still keep very objective language, but introduce a little bit of flexibility, even if it's just a 10% variance from that mean average. So I think writing, introducing that kind of a change is, is perfectly possible, but I haven't heard anyone actually tell us to go do that. Well, does anyone have consistency is consistency? I'm I'm in favor of what Chuck or Chuck what Ken mentioned in terms of uh, leading a little flexibility for the outlying outlying lot. Uh, does anybody feel differently? Yeah, I think that what Shannon said, if you want to change that, you get a variance. Okay. Oh, Joe. Ilya, um, go ahead, Tojo. Well, I said get a get a variance too. So, I would okay. I would agree with the variance approach as well. There it is. It stays. Okay. <clears throat> very good. Very very good. Okay. So back to the question, um, Tom Rodrigo. Do you have what you came for? Are you comfortable that uh, you've heard well, what you needed to hear? Yeah, we are. And I just, uh, at least I am, I'll, I'll defer to Tom in a minute. Um, I just want to make sure that we understand. So this, we have this as an informational item, right? We don't, we yeah. didn't set this up as a vote because we want to hear from all the Macs, right? Uh, what the, the thing that we are trying to emphasize is we would prefer that we come up with one objective standards document that's unincorporated countywide. And what we, um, didn't want, and it doesn't seem to be happening here at the Castro Valley Mac. Thank you so much. Is that that the Max would say, no, in our area we want this, and let the others do what they want, but in our area we want this. And so you're you're in agreement that that it sounds like to me that that we can move forward with the objective standards unincorporated countywide, which I appreciate. We were thinking that even though this is informational, that we would not be back at the Mac unless you want to take a formal vote on a more refined document. We're thinking. This is our information to take back as we continue to draft it. This is a draft form. As we continue to draft it, take input from the other MACs, continue to draft it, and then go to the Planning Commission for their vote. And so I want to set expectations. And, and uh, Chair uh, Mulgrew, you said, well, you, you feel more comfortable if there's more review by developers. So I, I hate to ask the question, but I have to. Is your expectation that we would be back here for your formal vote? And again, from staff's perspective, this is this is an organic document right now, and the vote would be at the planning commission. But but I want to hear your perspectives. Okay, thank you. Um, I see two hands raised, Rodrigo. Before I address the question, I want to hear from Shannon and then Chuck, please. Well, I have a question. I mean, if there since. It doesn't sound like the Castor Valley Mac um, intends to make any suggestions for significant changes. 
but if other MACs were to make suggestions and if the document was to be modified significantly, would you come back to the Castor Valley MAC? Well, and so that's, you know, then we'd have to decide because, because so if you'd want us to, we would. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, and that's that, the reason why we went to the workshops to begin with, and Tom would be kicking me under the table, I think right now, uh, if there, if we were sitting next to each other, but the reason we we did the workshops that we into this is we wanted all the various MAC members to listen to everybody else on what the suggestions were, right? The, the suggestions from the MAC members, as well as the responses from, from the consultant and from staff, so that we would get uh, a, a pretty good idea of the level of consistency broadly among the four MACs, so that we could put together as much as possible a document that is adoptable by all four MACs. And we I'm, think I'm sorry, done. I'm, Rodrigo, I'm sorry to even jump oh, in. Bill. Yeah, hang on, please. Um, Chuck had his hand up. I know, but this might end this whole conversation. Are we the first or the last um, MAC to review this? You're the first. first. Oh, okay. Well, Shannon, are you are you complete? Well, I would just like to express that if the document remained the same without significant changes from other Macs, I would be fine with not with it not coming back to the Mac. But I am not comfortable just signing off on changes from other Mac boards that yeah. may affect Castor Valley. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's my opinion. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Chuck? Yeah, I would concur with Shannon. I, I actually was wondering what if we were first or fourth. If yeah. we were fourth, I'm perfectly fine with it. But if we're first, um, I, I, I would like to know what those changes would be. Yeah. And I'd be, I would agree totally, Chuck, with you and with Shannon. And I'd be very fine if changes that were made caused by the other MACs or other reviews were um, sent back to the members of this MAC that were on the working group um, as a courtesy, as a, as a check and say, um, you know, if, if Tojo and, and Chuck say, well, gosh, I, I think the nature of these changes is such that it should come back to the MAC, uh, the full MAC, then, I'd be I'd be very good with that, and if if Tojo and Chuck say as the members of the working group, um, nothing nothing major here, I'd be fine with that too. So give me an example on what is major. Um, taking out uh, the massing standards, uh, altering those significantly. Or, or saying no more consistency, loss of consistency anywhere in the county. Right. right. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Rodrigo, are you okay with that? Uh, I, I, I believe so. Um, uh, Tom had, has a comment that I'd like to defer. Yeah, I was just going to say two things. One, um, based on sort of the tenor of the working group meetings, Obviously, I was just meeting everybody for the first time, but the way those meetings went, I didn't come away from it thinking, well, this is what Castro Valley wants, and this is what these people want. There seemed to be sort of a unanimous way that the, 
thing that the documents organically came together. The issues we were discussing seemed to have the same value to each of the working group members. Now that said, um, we weren't like, let's say we go to our next meeting, uh, Eden area or something. I don't think we would actually create a document that deletes something because they say delete that. I think what we would do is write a memo saying, you know, look at that existing document. This Mac uh, proposes that this be changed to X, this be deleted, um, add something about that. So this document won't change. I think it might pick up comments. But as I said first, I don't see our next three meetings being demonstrably different than this one based on the people I met in the working group meetings. And so, so is this Mac okay with this being information? I, what I don't want is, you know, because the idea was to get the planning commission to to take the, the draft and the comments from the Macs and the planning commission takes the vote. I think the feeling I'm getting is, is that we'd like to see it again, not necessarily vote, but at least touch it again after it's been at least see if any changes. Yeah. Have changes flagged at least. Okay. okay. So we can we can do that. We can work that into the schedule. Good. Uh, would it be and what I would want to do and uh, so wait. So uh, I'm sorry. So are you saying that that it, you're okay with just the workshop or the full Mac, the the two members from the workshop? Because we could. Go to the convene one workshop meeting from all from all Macs and say after meeting with all the Macs, this is the document that we're taking to the planning commission, and that would be one meeting yeah. as opposed to every other Mac saying, "Well, I want to meet again too." No, I, I, go ahead, Ken. Maybe you know what? Okay, so Rodrigo, maybe that's what happens. You just bring it back to a workshop meeting if there's. Um, whatever changes, if there's something in there that Chuck doesn't agree with or Toe doesn't agree with based on a change that may appear, then we have to bring it back. But if not, it just moves forward to the planning commission. Yeah. I mean, I would trust Chuck and Tojo to, to, you know, to make sure that this is maintained. I, does that sound reasonable? Because that way it minimize, it'll probably reduce your time, time yeah. to get this done. Right. Yeah. That we'd like to, be as as efficient with that. We, what we don't want is well, you know, all this round robin of <clears throat> all the max meeting again and again and again. On it. Yes. You okay with that, Shannon? Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. 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 So we would take it to the workshop. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Really appreciate the good work, the intent. Um, it, it's going to be a it's going to be a nice change. Great. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the input. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Chair's report. Uh, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning. Um, our next meeting is next Tuesday, not next Monday. Um, the library is unavailable on Monday. We will be having our first hybrid meeting on the 27th. And 
that will be in the in-person part of the hybrid will be at the Castro Valley Library. Um, we will have to observe social distancing and masks, um, both as council and as attendees. And this is my understanding is that this is that if Mac, if members of the council wish to be remote, may do so uh, and participate virtually. However, when the meetings be, become live in March, we're all expected to be there in person. Shannon, you got it. Is that a hand? Oh, okay. Um, Bill, just an yes. FYI, next week on Tuesday, I have a prior meeting um, that I cannot, you know, not attend. So I sure. will not participate. And then uh, on the live meeting, if we have to wear a mask, I'll do it on Zoom. Uh, you won't have the you won't have the choice. So so back in 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 the hybrid meeting, people have the option to be in person or to be uh, virtual. And those in attendance in person have to wear the mask for for the hybrid meeting starting in March. We're back to pre-pandemic, everybody rubbing shoulders and coughing on each other and, yeah. and all that good stuff. Thank you. And it will also be, the March meetings will be hybrid as well. So there's yeah. no difference except for the state of emergency um, ends on February 28th. The board policy related to social distancing and masking in county buildings uh, ends. February 28th as well. So for the February 27th meeting, for anybody who will attend in person at the library, you'll it'll be set up as a social distance meeting uh, and you'll have to mask on February 27th. Beginning March, all, all those rules go away. Right. But they'll still be hybrid. Sorry, Rodrigo. And just to reiterate, the the starting in March, Hybrid means the public can be hybrid, but the board members have to be in person. Is that correct? That's correct. Perfect. Well, we don't have to wear a mask in March. Is that correct? In March, you do not have to wear a mask, nor will the setup be social distance. So you can be virtual on the 27th and not wear your mask. The 27th is the last time you can be virtual. Right. And honestly. All right. So, staff, uh, just a just a, a a point. Staff will be. I will be there. One of my clerical staff will be there in person at the Castro Valley Library on the twenty seventh. Moving moving forward, we will also be there, um, in person at the Castro Valley Library. Uh, staff who who do the reporting may may um, do it virtually just to to save right. us from overhead costs. Sure. Um, but but I will be there personally. One of my clerical staff will be there personally starting on the 27th moving forward. Very good. So just to make sure, next week, 21st, we're Zoom. 27th, we're doing hybrid with the mask on. And then in starting March, we're all live at the Castro Valley Library. That is correct. Thank you. All right, Al, do you have, a, do you have something for us? Uh, yes, sir, I do. I, I brought this up a couple times in the past. I just want to make sure that uh, it's being considered as an agenda item. One is uh, 
the maintenance of the eucalyptus trees in the, in the creek. Uh, secondarily, uh, in today's forum, there was a letter with regard to uh, BART parking versus housing on part of the BART parking lot. Uh, something that I think we ought to maybe attend, you know, just pay attention to. And then lastly, I don't know how much, if any, we are going to be able to comment with regard to the rock quarry on, uh, what do you want to call it? You want to call it uh, not estudable. Hey, that, that project, Al, um, East Bay Mud has let their option to buy the land expire and there's no no plans forming around oh, that. So right that's, now. okay, so that's a dead beast. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, but like I said, the, the maintenance on the trees, be, whose is it and whose was it and who's it going to be kind of a thing? And the second thing is, like I say, I know that uh, with regard to our housing element in general, uh, there's some concerns about what space is going to be designated for that that is currently being used elsewhere. Anyway, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you very Can I much. Can I ask a clarifying question? So on the trees, uh, any creeks or any specific creek, Al? Well, the ones I'm familiar with are the Castro Valley Creek that runs you know, between Shuck Sandy Road, higher, uh, Castro Valley Boulevard down to the CHP uh, offices. That, okay. I, I, I know there's others, but I can't specifically identify them. All I do okay. know is that uh, two homes specifically on Forest Avenue, of which I live off of, uh, literally had two homes destroyed here in the last couple, well, actually it was a year ago, by two trees in the creek. And I know that there's a number of people that are concerned with, you know, whose responsibility is it? Has it been currently? Whose is it? And who's it going to be? Because I don't think we've seen the last of these eucalyptus trees and what they may or may not do to property adjacent to them. Okay, because it has been addressed in writing um, by the Public Works Agency and code enforcement during the storm um, activity, I'll call it. Um, so I'm, I was just trying to get some clarity as to. Maybe I'm one of the few that does question. Pardon me, a clearer idea of who's responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of those trees that are either A, in the creek or immediately adjacent to the creek. Okay. I can provide the re the written response we have as well. Okay, perfect. Um, I, that probably may give clarity as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Uh, well, that leaves open the BART parking lot and housing issue. We'll check into that. Thank you. You bet. Chuck, what you got? I just have two uh, requests. One is uh, with all the roads closed in Castro Valley, if we could get an update from Public Works um, at part of the meetings going forward, so we knew what roads were going to be uh, worked on or reopened or whatever would be great. Mm -hmm. uh, and the next thing is, is uh, um, I'd like something uh, to hear something from code enforcement um, about changing schedules and working a little bit on the weekends because we're having issues in the Canyonlands that uh, I'm hearing about and seeing 
that um, need code enforcement attention. Thank you. Thank you. Been working, Tone and I have been working on that issue and we'll have, hopefully we'll have something to, to share soon. The code enforcement piece. Yeah, I mean, the sheriff's department says, hey, that's a code enforcement issue. Why don't they hear? Right. Right. Gotcha. More to come. Tojo? A quick comment. Uh, PG&E, um, you know, I've been approached by people asking, hey, can you do something about the PG&E bill? You guys are the MAC board. But, uh, you know, it, it has been uh, it's been horrible the past three months, and it's gone up like 30 to 40%, and people are kind of, uh, tired of it and uh you know there should be some type of cap on how much they can increase the increase the you know uh, gas price or whatever but it's kind of uh people i don't know if people can afford it but people who are complaining are saying that this is this is not fair and uh you know you know like at&t uh comcast we have competition and cable you know all this stuff you know they we can pick and choose but pgn is monopolizing the whole market that we don't have a choice so can we get some explanation from BG&E? Somebody could come in and, uh, you know, explain to us what's going on because it's completely unfair and it's affecting uh, people's livelihood, you know? Well, they have competitions called solar. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Right. Yep. We're going to get our gas stoves taken away from us soon. So yep. then, then it'll go up even more. Gas stoves and heaters. Yep. Yep. Some infinite wisdom here. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Tojo. We'll work on that. Anybody up? Staff, Rodrigo, Tona, any, anything for the good of the order? Uh, not from planning department staff. We covered already the next uh, planning meeting is the 27th hybrid. So I will see some of you there in person. Yep. Thank you. And I will thank everybody for good, good work, good thoughts tonight, and look forward to seeing you on next Tuesday. Thank Peace. you. All. Good, night. good night. Thank you. Thank you.